Welcome everyone. This is Jordan and I'm the worship pastor here at Trevecca Community Church. And we are so glad that you're here with us today as we hear God's word. Each week we stream the service live from the sanctuary just for you. So come along with us now as we grow together and hear what God has to say to us. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 1 through 10. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We always give thanks to God for all of you and mention you in our prayers, constantly remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters beloved by God, that he has chosen you, because our message of the gospel came to you not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of persons we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for in spite of persecution, you received the word with joy from the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place your faith in God has become known so that we have no need to speak about it. For they report about us what kind of welcome we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, friends. We've got some really good news in front of us today, and we've got a challenge. And so I want to deal with the challenge first. And I think the challenge is this, that most of us walk around with a vision of the good life that remains really unexamined. We may not know what we mean when we talk about the good life. So here is an exercise I'd like to do this morning to just get us into the challenge. Can I ask you to imagine, just for a couple of moments, what is your vision of the good life? Now you might need to close your eyes, take just a minute, and ask, what is my vision of the good life? Okay, well, that's the sermon. We're done. Thank you. That's it. <laughs> Jeff, you just saved us about 25 minutes, brother. I was waiting for his trademark Jesus, and then we'd be donezo. Um, no, but what is your vision of the good life? Um, I have to admit that I think many of us communicate about the vision of the good life more in images than in words. And so this week, I asked my kids to help me envision the good life. I got them a stack of magazines and this poster board, and I said to them, I would like for you to cut out any images that you have of the good life. Flip through these pages, find something. If it speaks to you, if it 
if it's a, an image of the good life, cut it out and let's stick it on this board. And so here's what they've come up with. There's lots of fun stuff on here. We've got good food down here. Absolutely right. Can I get an amen? That's right. Whew, I'm telling you what. Now the sermon will be even shorter. Um, they've got, okay, a family over here, smiling families, like smiling couples, relationships. Like they chose that on their own, and I'm grateful that at least the family factored into their vision of the good life just a little bit. Some kind of uh, like home decor things that are over there. I keep telling them if they'll just keep their rooms a little cleaner, our house would look a little bit closer to this. Got some nice flowers, some fashion, some more cinnamon rolls. Um, there's, oh, there's like a cruise ship over here. There's an image of this guy driving a boat. Uh, it's Randy Dodd. Um, we've got just a couple. Of, oh, we've got another cruise ship. The beach is over here somewhere. A lot of dogs and cats, honestly. Uh, I was a little bit surprised. There was a philosophical conversation that broke out around the kitchen table as to whether more dogs or more cats should be in the vision of the good life. We know that the Bible says it's cats, but that's okay. We'll move on. Uh, let's see. Beyond that, um, oh, there's a couple of old Corvettes here. I, I helped a little bit with this. That's okay. Here, friends, I think is the image of the good life that many of us operate with, even if we're not terribly aware of it. In other words, I think we have what I call the magazine collage approach to the good life, where we see some stuff, and in some ways we go, you know what, if I just had that thing, if it's just that, vaca that meal, oh my goodness, that dog, that cat, that special someone, that smiling family, that renovation on my kitchen, we see these things and we go, yes, that's an image of the good life. We might see the car that we really want, the house that we really want to live in. And we see those things and in some ways we take a snapshot of it and it goes into this unconscious vision of the good life. Now, I want you to hold on to that for just a second because philosophers for thousands of years have been grappling with their understanding of what makes a good life, what constitutes a good life. For many of us, I think it's like this, but other philosophers have said, okay, is there another way of measuring the good life? Because one of the ways we could measure the good life, I think just on an unspoken, like modern, contemporary way, is to whether or not we get all the stuff that we want that's on our, our collage board. That might be one way of measuring the good life. But there are other philosophers, more contemporary philosophers, who have tried this thought experiment with us and asked us to imagine our funeral. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? <laughs> Think with me about your funeral for just a second. And in this thought experiment, you've got philosophers who are, who are saying things like, imagine someone who gets up and has to talk about you after you have passed away, okay? You might be there. You know, your physical presence might still be there in the sanctuary. And someone's gonna have to get up and say some nice things about you, hopefully it's nice. And they're gonna talk about your life. You might have achieved everything you ever wanted on this board. Maybe everything you ever saw, that snapshot that's functioning like this in your imagination, has been achieved. You got all the delicious food. You got to go on those vacations. You got the house. You got all, the, you got the fa all that stuff. And yet, the person they're describing at that funeral is far from a good person. Or the other way around would be to say that maybe the person who they're eulogizing that day got none of these things. And yet everything that is spoken describes a person who is virtuous and good. 
So maybe you could live the good life that way. There's other approaches to this as well. Other philosophers have taken other approaches, saying that the good life is lived when we live in the balance between excess and defect. I mean, there's lots of different ways that people have grappled over thousands of years in the Western tradition with what the good life is. And if there's anything I think that this can tell us, it is that getting a vision of the good life may not be as easy as we think that it is. It's complicated. So the good news for us this morning is that we are beginning a series in the book of 1 Thessalonians because I think we see in 1 Thessalonians a vision of the good life. Paul is looking at this group of people and saying, there's some good stuff that's going on here. You heard him for the first 10 or 11 verses of Thessalonians saying that there's a good reputation. In other words, if this was their funeral, People are going to say some really nice stuff about the Thessalonians. We've heard about all of your good works and your faith and your hope and your love from all over the region. I mean, even people who don't know you have this reputation. You, you have this good thing that is describing your life. You seem to be living the good life. But the challenge in front of us still is I think very few of us have been given the time and the opportunity to really examine whether we are living a good life. Because there's a perplexing question over all of this. What really makes life good? What really does make life good? Maybe you get everything on this. Is it still good? It's the kind of question that philosophers have been dealing with for thousands of years. In fact, it's the kind of question that motivated some of the greatest, most influential minds of the Western tradition. Thousands of years ago, there was a philosopher who lived in ancient Greece named Socrates. He was Plato's teacher, and Plato recorded a lot of stuff that Socrates thought and wrote it down for us so that we might be able to know these, these things. And one of the things that Plato said that Socrates said was this famous phrase that describes us, that the unexamined life is not worth living. Now that sounds pretty dark, doesn't it? But here's Socrates' point, is that many of us go through our lives not examining what makes life actually good. In other words, I think the way that Socrates understands us is that we're just kind of bumping into stuff. Like in a fleeting moment, we might see something that we want, a kitchen renovation project or that special someone. And if I could just get that thing or that someone, then life is going to be good. But really, we haven't taken the time to examine, even if I get that thing, what makes that really actually good? And so Socrates, I think, imagines most humans, most people like us, just kind of bumping from one thing into the next without a ton of direction, without a real clear vision of what makes any of this good to begin with. And I think it's actually maybe even harder for us now than it might have been for those people living in ancient Greece then because, well, how do I say this? Friends, we may be some of the most self-aware people to have ever walked the planet. We are the generation of the MBTI, of the DISC assessment, of strengths finders, of the spiritual gifts assessment, of the Enneagram. We have any of number of tools at our disposal to reflect on ourselves, and yet, I don't know if we still have a vision, a truthful vision of what really makes a good life. And I get the feeling that many folks today 
long for a good life that none of those assessments is capable of delivering. I get the sense that deep in our bones, we want deeply a good life, and that even if we got everything on our board, we'd still leave with this aching in our hearts, the sense of not being as fulfilled as we think that we should be. We get everything that we wanted, and we're still aching for more. So why is that? When Shauna and I were serving in Chicago in youth ministry, there was one night at youth group when a, uh, a young woman was sitting right there on the front row, and she was there most Wednesdays and most Sundays. Her family had a long history in this particular congregation, so she was in there. And there was a rhetorical question that came at the end of the lesson that night. And the rhetorical question, and she didn't pick up on the rhetorical part, by the way. Um, the rhetorical question was, if I went to your high school and I asked people about you, would they be able to identify that you are a Christian? And out of her mouth falls these abrupt words, oh gosh, I hope not. Now, I wasn't angry necessarily about that response, but I was curious about it. So afterwards, I found her and I said, hey, I'm, I'm not coming down on you, not at all. I'm just kind of curious. You're here every Sunday. You're here every Wednesday. Your family is here all the time. How come you don't want anybody to know that you're a Christian? And she kind of started to think about this a little bit and process it with me for a moment. And, and she finally kind of stumbled across these words. And she said, well, I guess my faith is just kind of like, well, it's just part of what makes me me, you know? I like dance, and I like chocolate, and I like Jesus. And suddenly, in that moment, I realized two things. The first thing was, you've just given me a sermon illustration that I couldn't have invented on my best day. Like, think, I will be telling this story for years. This is a gift that every preacher wants. But more than that, the real reality is that I suddenly realized this is a person who is questing after the good life and maybe is not set up for success to be able to find it. I don't think that that young woman I talked to that day had ever heard of a philosophy called, here we go, existentialism. You maybe have never heard of a philosophy called existentialism. Am I right? I'm just, I'm hearing you. But I have good news for you. I brought a definition that might help us with this just a little bit. Here is, I think, a fairly decent uh, definition of existentialism. Existentialism is the attempt to define what it means to be human according to our existence rather than our essence. That is to say, existentialists tend to agree that there is no common essence to humanity and that we need to make some meaning in our lives. So here's the deal. If we have any shot at living the good life, it's up to us to take a bunch of stuff and to cobble together something like this to get some meaning out of this thing. It's up to us. It's not like there's some core essence to who we are as human beings. We just tap into this core essence. You are defined by what you do in the world and what you get in the world. But here's the issue. Look at every single one of these things. All of these 
And I'm not going to say that these things are bad necessarily. Please don't hear me saying that vacations are evil. That's not what I'm doing. I'm not saying that we should like fast forever because food is a bad because it's on this thing. Every single one of these things is simply limited. It doesn't make it bad. It just means that you're going to discover the limits of its goodness pretty quickly. You have this meal down here and you're going to be hungry three hours later. It was a really good meal. Can I get an amen? And yet, you're hungry later that day. The vacation, that dream vacation that you've been saving up for, it comes and you're so excited for it. Maybe that's part of the vision of the good life and 10 days later, you're back at work going, what happened to my vacation? It's over, it was gone, I reached the limits of it. Even the things like the relationships on here, friends, please hear me. The relationships with other human beings are not bad, but they're limited. Why? Because we are finite creatures. There are limits to our goodness, and I'm saying this on my anniversary. I think over the last 17 or 18 years, maybe Shauna has discovered, I know this is hard to believe, there are limits to my goodness. Ah, well, bless you. Those limits are usually really close to the surface when I'm tired and hungry. And friends, there will be a day that one of us will have to say goodbye to the other. There will be a day that one of us will probably be at the bedside of the other and one of us will take our last breath and we will lose the other person. And that doesn't mean that this is a bad arrangement. It just means that there's a limit to this life. And the issue that continues to show up over and over and over and over and over again is that when we are seeking after the good life, when we are trying to existentialize our good life, of take the good life and grab the stuff and get the relationships and grab all of that stuff and make the good life, part of what we end up doing is reaching the limits of every single thing we've put on our board and going, it's not bad, it's just limited. And my heart is still longing after something more. I found the limits of all of this stuff and I still need to be connected with something more. Here's the real issue that I think that we're grappling with in our contemporary society today. It's the Jesus dance and chocolate problem. It's that we really haven't grappled with the reality of an eternal God who is goodness beyond limit. The part of the human heart is longing after communion with a God whose goodness knows no bounds. And so part of what we do when we don't find satisfaction in our life and all this stuff is that we just try to keep adding more stuff in and here's the issue, including God, including our faith. So that when we're not satisfied, we go, you know what I need to do? I'm gonna go find some faith. And we put God on the board. We take our faith and we put our faith on the board and we treat these things as if they're just as limited and finite as the other things in our life. We just add more things in and if we need to use God to do that, if we need to use God to kind of use our existentialist muscles here, we'll use God to do that if that means that we might be able to get a little bit of satisfaction out of this thing. The trouble is we treat God like just one of the many things. Dance, chocolate, Jesus. That, I think, is part of where we are today. 
I think one of the issues that I am seeing in the students I work with on a regular basis at the university is that they are coming to us operating with a vision of the good life, right, guys? Like, you wouldn't be here if it weren't some vision of the good life that is causing you to make the decisions that bring you to this point. I came here, and usually when I talk to the students, I was like, what, what brought you here? And they said, well, I'm, I'm coming because I want to get a job. Well, tell me about that. Well, I want a job because I want to be able to get a house, and I want to maybe have a family that I can provide for, and so on and so forth. And I'm, what I'm seeing is more and more and more of all the stuff that goes on the board. If I could just be honest with you, I think one of the things that keeps me up at night is the students who come to this campus community year after year after year might end up getting everything they want and still end up deeply unsatisfied because it's just a construction project. It's just more existentialism. It's just more adding stuff in. And if the faith that we are talking about is just one more thing to add to it, that's going to be a recipe for disappointment and a deep recipe for being the kinds of people who are never going to be satisfied with the good life because we don't have really a truly vision of the good life. Are you picking up what I'm throwing down? The stuff on here isn't bad. Hear, hear that. It's just limited. <laughs> there you go. We can go to lunch early. Now, let me try to give us a little bit of good news because I think that's the challenge. Hopefully, I've narrated the challenge well enough for us. Let me try to give us a little bit of good news that I think comes to us out of the book of 1 Thessalonians. We are going to be in the book of 1 Thessalonians over the sermon series, largely because the global church is going to start paying attention to the book of 1 Thessalonians for the next several weeks. Sometimes we dip into something called the lectionary, which is like all of the texts that the church around the world is going to. So many Christians around the world today have also read the same text today. And one of the things about 1 Thessalonians is, to, to help us understand what's really going on here, is that the, the, Th the Thessalonian church was planted by Paul when he went to Thessalonica and spent about three weeks teaching in their synagogues there. He went to Thessalonica to reason in the synagogues and teach them about Jesus, who is the Messiah, who is resurrected from the dead. And this message starts to resonate with some of these people, and they start to come together as this little tiny fledgling church. I mean, there were some people who were starting to say, like, I, this resonates with me. There's something more here than the life of idolatry that I was living before. You heard it in the passage that Sharon read for us, that these are a people who Paul has seen have left their life of worshiping idols and are now worshiping what Paul contrasts as the living God. The problem is, after three weeks, there's some folks in Thessalonica who don't like what Paul is doing, and they start stirring up a mob. That mob is always a good way to get someone run out of town, especially in the Roman Empire. Why? Because the Romans don't want people stirring up trouble. If you stir up trouble in one of their towns, you can be assured that the army is on its way to put down whatever this rebellion is. And so most of the time, people in places like Thessalonica, if they see a mob, they're going to be like, please don't do this. We don't want trouble. Okay? Would you just go? Just go on your way. So here's the mob stirring up all this trouble because they're angry about what Paul is teaching. And so Paul leaves in the middle of the night. He takes his stuff and he goes. He probably doesn't even get to say goodbye to most of the people that were in the church in Thessalonica. 
And so when I read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, I got to be honest with you, my pastor's heart begins to resonate very deeply with that. Because what Paul is, is doing here, really, is trying to check up on some people that he didn't want to have to leave, but he loves very much. For those of you who have ever served in ministry and had to move assignments, I think you might resonate a little bit with this. Oftentimes, you have to change ministry assignments long before your heart ever wants to, especially when the circumstances are hard and you've got to go. You still love those people. You still care about those people. And I see that all the way throughout 1 Thessalonians 1. This week, I was helping to facilitate a pastor's training day for one of our sister universities, Southern Nazarene University in, in Oklahoma. And the man who organized that is a friend, he's been a friend for a long time, but he served as the pastor of the Bakersfield First Church before Shauna and I were the pastors at Bakersfield First. And as part of that training day, we were talking about all kinds of different things that he wanted to talk about that day, but he kept dropping in the names of people that he and I both served as pastors. And it tugged on my heart because I miss those people. I love those people. I care deeply about those people. I think I see the same kind of thing going on in Paul. Because when you leave a place, there is that ache where you, you always kind of look back and you go, I'm, I got to go to a new place and I've got to take on a new season of ministry. But oh, I don't want you to lose what I was trying to pour out upon you. I hope the gospel is still going to take root deep in your life. And part of what Paul is doing here is he's had to leave them in the middle of the night, didn't even get to say goodbye. So he finds Timothy and he says to Timothy, go back to Thessalonica and see how they're doing. Check in with them. And Timothy comes back with report. And I can only imagine how Paul would have been a little bit, mm, I don't know, nervous about this report because if I'm honest, and, and pastors, you know this. You kind of look back and you get these reports from places you've served and it is heartbreaking when things aren't going well. When so-and-so got in a fight with so-and-so and they've left the church and the gospel seems like it's not taking root the way and you gave your life to that place. You gave your life to those people and you just wanted them to be faithful followers of Jesus and it doesn't seem like things are going well. That's a hard word to hear. But that's not the word that Timothy gives to Paul. Timothy comes to Paul and says, you won't believe it. But that church that you planted after three weeks is thriving. These people are rooted in the gospel. The things that marks their life is not bickering and infighting and all that kind of stuff. It is faith and hope and love and they're doing well. And by the way, it's not just the Thessalonians who know about these people. Everybody knows about these people. Every time I go to the neighboring cities, they're like, have you heard about this church in Thessalonica? They're doing really, really, really good stuff. And I think that there is in many ways a vision of the good life that is there in those people. In other words, these people are the kinds of people you'd want to speak really well of at their funerals. The Thessalonian church wasn't trying to just paste together a collage of the things that they thought would make their lives good. They didn't seem to be really all that interested in being terribly good Romans. But they did seem to be really interested in acquiring, they didn't seem to be interested in, in acquiring a bunch of stuff just to have material possessions. But by Paul's account, they are living a really good life. Here's the primary point, I think. They turned from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, on the trip that Paul 
took to plant that church, he left Thessalonica and he shot over to Berea. He stays in Berea for a little bit and he goes on to Athens. Every single place he goes, he finds a bunch of idols. And he's basically saying to them, these idols are not a recipe for living a good life. But what does he find in the Thessalonians now? What's the report that he's hearing back from Timothy? These people have fleed from the idols. They have left the idolatry life behind and they are worshiping the living and the true God. I think, yeah, idols are a problem for us. Not just because they take our attention away from God. That is a big part of it. But I really think the problem is that you can never put enough idols together to make a good life. Because idols are limited. They're dead. They're not doing anything. It doesn't mean that they're necessarily evil. It just means that they're, li they're limited. So friends, I think that's exactly how you and I have been programmed to try to live the good life is by cobbling together enough limited stuff to satisfy our deepest need, and then we somehow realize, oh my goodness, I'm still a deeply unsatisfied person. I got everything that I wanted, and yet I'm still not terribly satisfied. So I want us to notice what Paul does here. Idols are contrasted to, living, to the living and true God. Now, I want to be careful with the way that I say this because I don't want anybody today to come away saying, this guy was preaching for idols. idols he, said, he said idols were good. That's, I, hear me, <laughs> all right? I'm trying to say that the real problem with idols isn't just that they're these concentrated little forms of evil. It's that they're limited. It's that we find their limits very quickly. The same thing could be true of anything on that board. It's not that the vacation is bad. It's not that the house is evil. It's just that it's limited. The vacation will end. The house will crumble. You might have to say goodbye to the person you've invested your life in. That doesn't make them bad. It just means that we are finite creatures. And that means, friends, that the things that we paste onto our good life collage aren't necessarily bad. It just means that we're probably going to reach their limits of their goodness sooner or later. So here's the vision of the good life for the Thessalonians. They're devoted to the infinite God who's boundless, whose goodness knows no limits. And this, my brothers and sisters, this I think is what we are longing for deep in our bones. I think deep down in our bones, we long to be people who are satisfied because we have connected with something that will never run dry. The goodness will know no limits, and we will be able to live the good life because we have connected with the living God rather than something that is going to release its goodness really quickly. The problems that We've oftentimes, I think, reduced God down to one of the many things that we're trying to use to construct our lives. And now that isn't even offering to us the good life. But the good news, I think, is that the living God is not one of the many things. Friends, if God fits on this board, that is no God worth worshiping. See, I, I don't think that God belongs on the board. I think God is trying to help us make sense of what goes on to our board. Does that make sense? 
In other words, we know how to relate to everything on here because we are focused singularly on God. And the way that Paul talks about this in the life of the Thessalonian church is that they have come to worship the living and the true God and it teaches them how to use everything else that's on this board to arrange it well. Paul talks about this life as the life of, and this should come as no surprise to anybody who's paid attention to sermons in this church, sanctification. In other words, they are singularly focused on God and everything else begins to take its rightful place. They are God's holy people because they are for God alone and everything else finds its rightful place in that. And so Paul, I think, is seeing an example of the good life in the Thessalonians. They've devoted themselves to the true and the living God. It's causing them to live a really good life. That doesn't mean that their life was easy. It doesn't mean that they got everything on the board that they'd ever wanted. But it is becoming the stuff of a good life that people are talking about. It's a life, as Paul calls it, of sanctification, where they're devoted to the holy God alone. And they've stopped trying to satisfy themselves with a collage of limited things. There's one existentialist philosopher who I didn't think I'd ever talk about in a sermon, but I think it it matters for us. One existentialist philosopher named Friedrich Nietzsche, 19th century German philosopher, had an amazing mustache and a really dark philosophy. Nietzsche's point is this. He's speaking primarily to Christians, people who call themselves Christians in 19th century Germany, and and he's saying this. Y'all are acting like God doesn't exist, so why don't you just live like it? It's a really, really pointed critique, primarily at people who call themselves Christians. And Nietzsche's point is, since you've stopped living like God really does exist, since you've reduced God to one of the many things on your poster board, since you've just made God into like one of the finite things that's trying to make meaning out of this existence, why don't you just be honest about what you're doing and live like it. And so the point of human existence is just to live harder. It's to live stronger. It's to produce more stuff. It's to get everything that you've ever wanted. You have to just go stronger and harder and faster and bigger. You have to dominate the competition. You have to create and think and be smarter and fat and all those things. And you, then you'll be able to live the good life. And friends, even though we have maybe never heard of existentialism or Friedrich Nietzsche or know anything about that, I think it has gotten deep into our bones, if I could be honest. I think there is a disease that is infiltrating kind of the Christian imagination these days where we think we have to make our lives the way Nietzsche's told us. And I want to say no more. The good news of the gospel is that God is holy and different and other. And if we can begin to turn our hearts to God alone, it will teach us exactly how to relate to everything else here. We look at that and we we say, thanks be to God for all these things, that they are not God, and I will refuse to worship them. So how do we live this life? So wrapping it up today, let me give you these three things that I think will help us to live this life that we see on display in the Thessalonians. The first one is to recognize the difference between the gift and the giver. See, I I think if we can recognize the difference between the giver who gives us the gift, it will show us that the gift isn't bad, but it is limited. And that even, friends, 
even if we lose the gift, we haven't lost the giver. That the gift isn't a bad thing. The finite thing isn't necessarily evil. But we have to differentiate between those two things because I think part of what we do on a regular basis is consume ourselves with finitude. And we take our gaze and we lock it into the finite things. We even make God a finite thing. We just add God in to one, one of the many other things that I need to use to make my life have some meaning. And it's still deeply unsatisfying. God is not the gift. God is the giver of the gifts. The second thing, I think, is to give thanks to God for the gifts that God gives to us. I think that helps us make this differentiation. I think we can still understand how these things that we use in our life are not necessarily evil, but they need to be received as gifts. I'll be honest <laughs> about the fact that I have a really hard time getting rid of t-shirts. I have a hard time getting rid of t-shirts, not just because I want to hang on to them, but because I'm thinking about the people who gave me those t-shirts. Every time someone tells me it's time to clean out the wardrobe and we're collecting too much stuff, I go, yeah, but so-and-so gave me this. My grandmother gave me this one. My dad gave me this. My mom gave me this one. My sister gave I can't get rid of these. I'm thankful for the one who gave me the gift. And I think that maybe that could help us with this, to give thanks to God for the gifts that have been given. And thirdly, to use whatever gifts have been given to love the eternal creator. See, I'd like to think that those t-shirts help me love the one who gave them to me. I don't want to love the t-shirt. I want to love the one who gave them. The problem is, when we try to love this stuff, it stops short of the good life. I think the good life is to be found in loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving our neighbors ourselves. And if we can use the stuff to love God, I think there's a real good shot at the good life there. So today, can I ask you to revisit your image of the good life? Are you carrying around a collage? Is that the way that you're attempting to live the good life, to fill it with limited stuff and love it? That doesn't mean that it's bad stuff or evil, but it's limited. Is your collage taking on the vision of the God who is unlimited goodness? This morning we have the opportunity to go to prayer. These altars are going to be open. If you want to come and find a place of prayer, maybe it is the case this morning that you are coming to a realization there's just too much focus on the finite stuff of life. It doesn't mean that it's bad. It means that you recognize deep in your bones you have a profound need for something more. And that maybe it is this morning that you simply need to come and lay some finite stuff, whether it be the material possessions or the relationships or whatever it is, on the altar and say, I need to lay this stuff here and properly focus my attention on the God of infinite goodness. I need to learn how to use the stuff that I've got to love God well. Maybe it's the case this morning that that's the cry of your heart or that you are living a deeply unsatisfied life and that something else needs to change to be able to have your heart finally 
come to a place of satisfaction in God's holiness. Whatever it may be, I want you to hear the good news of the gospel. Jesus Christ is infinite goodness and infinite love. And there is more love and goodness and grace that can ever fit on any kind of construction project that you and I could make. And that gift is on offer to us today. The altars are open. Let's go to prayer. If you want to come and find a place of prayer, you're more than welcome to do that. As we trust ourselves into God's care to live a truly, beautifully, holy, good life. Thanks for tuning in. Remember, you can join us in person in the sanctuary at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings, live on YouTube or through our sermon podcast. If you'd like to give, you can do so at trevecachurch give. Any other ministry resources can be found on our website. However you join us, however you choose to engage, know that you are loved. We're grateful for you.